He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, my next guest is Rick Edelman. You've seen him on TV, you've heard him on radio. He is chairman and CEO of Edelman Financial Services. They employ over 500 people in 42 offices in 13 states based in Washington, D.C. and in New York. He is the best-selling author on the New York Times with over a million copies of his seven books in print, host of a syndicated personal financial talk show called the Rick Edelman Show that's been on air for more than 20 years. Three times he's been named to Barron's number one independent financial advisor. So with me today, Mr. Rick Edelman. Hey, Rick, thanks a lot for coming on board. Hey, I read something where the CFO of Capital One described you as a very impatient man. <laughs> said, said, said that it was not one of your virtues watching your show, listening to you on radio. I, I, I sense that's the case. But, you know, to me, that seems like it's a little bit of a, I don't know if I want to use the word oxymoron or contradiction for finance, because most of the people I know in finance are, are very patient kinds of people. Well, we're talking about two different things. Uh, Gary Perlin, who was uh, recently retired as the CFO of Capital One, a good friend of mine, and we've served on some charity boards together. Uh, Gary knows me as a very impatient person when it comes to executing the mission. Uh, I'm not a big fan of committee meetings. I'm not a big fan of uh, deliberation and obfuscation. You know, when there's a clear path that is obvious and necessary, let's get on with it. But that's very different from the approach I take as an investor uh, and the investment strategy and the investment management approach that my firm uses we're now managing over $14 billion in assets. We're one of the largest investment advisors in the country with uh, over 26,000 clients around the U.S. We are anything but impatient. Um, Warren Buffett, in fact, has the very famous statement of saying that his, his average holding period for a stock is forever. Uh, and we pretty much have the same point of view. We are not at all interested in what's going on in the market today. I couldn't care less about what the pundits are being paraded across CNBC and Bloomberg are, are saying, or Fox Business are saying at the moment, uh, I care very much about what's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, not five minutes or five days or five weeks. Uh, and that long-term approach, where you are very, very patient and methodical and deliberate, is extraordinarily important as an investor. But I'll tell you this, Jeff, it's deadly as an entrepreneur. Oh, big it, time. Big it's time. deadly as a business yeah. owner. Well, i got to say amen, my friend, because I've said on Bloomberg, you speak contributor editor there as well and uh, a show television show and I would sit there on the set on the roundups or whatever it would be and then the, these guys would start talking about you know Facebook's off a penny a penny you know yeah. or whatever it might be and I'm going like you idiot you think this is you think that they're sitting in the boardroom worrying about this crap right now I mean and now a lot of companies do but I think most people don't pay any attention I don't spend a lot of time paying attention well I'll tell you I'll tell you this you you said it absolutely correct Jeff you're right there are some companies that are sitting around the boardroom paying attention to that penny and you shouldn't be investing in those stocks (laughs) because if that's what the board if that's what the chief executive of that company is spending his time doing trust me he's not running his business yeah he's not he's not focused on the real things that matter and that's what they've got to be able to do for the shareholders in the end which is really right. build a great company. 
Right, exactly. Hey, who's to, who? Who is building a great company? Who would you say right now you would put at the very top that that you say, hey, these they got great leadership, great products, great company. Well, I'm not going to mention specific names, although it'll come off as an endorsement and a recommendation of those individual you stocks. Get, which oh, do you get in trouble for that? Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, yeah, trouble? yeah. Okay. You know, that, uh, well, SEC enough. doesn't like it when I do that. But I will tell you thematically, the kinds of companies that we find impressive and the kinds of leadership uh, in companies that we find very impressive are companies that are recognizing exponentiality. Hmm. In other words, they're not trying to grow their business by 5 or 10 or 15 percent. They're trying to add zeros. They're trying to grow by 10x. Uh, they're trying to take their company from a billion to 10 billion. They're trying to go from 10 million customers to 100 million customers. Com- companies that are trying to solve the most pressing problems on our planet. I once uh, talked with Peter Diamandis, uh, who's the founder of the XPRIZE Foundation. It's because of him that we had a private space flight go up uh, winning a $10 million prize. And Peter said something really fascinating. He said, do you want to be a billionaire? Then help a billion people. Yeah, exactly. Look at the companies that are doing things of a huge consequence. Not someone who just is building a better widget, but someone who's inventing an entirely new widget that will transform the lives of the billions of people on this planet. That's who you want to be investing in. I like the I like the concept of adding zeros. I always say that there's no difference between a business on Main Street and one on Wall Street, except for the numbers of zeros. Fundamentally, the same issues. And I always like people who are who are thinking big and then act bigger. I mean, I really do. And that's a big thing. It's 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 tough to find people like that, though. Right? Well, and and it's really easy to understand why. You need to take a look at these very big companies. Look at the Fortune 500, for example. Mm-hmm. These are huge organizations with tens of thousands, often hundreds of thousands of employees, right. millions of customers, real estate facilities that are massive, with a, an ingrained set of products and services that they deliver. They have an obligation to sustain that machine. And trying to turn it, imagine you know the, what it takes to turn an aircraft carrier. I think oh, the yeah. Navy says it takes four miles for an aircraft carrier to turn around. Uh, it's a huge endeavor, a very expensive undertaking, very risky undertaking, and that's why they're often so very busy running the current machine, they lack the agility, they lack the opportunity to be more decisive and in a quick, nimble way. Unlike the newer companies that aren't saddled with all of that infrastructure, they can can uh, exploit the opportunities that exist. And I'll give you the very best illustration of this. Okay. Kodak versus Instagram. Well, hey, I was at Kodak. I was the chief marketing officer there. I left there a number of years ago, and I agree 100%. I don't even know where you're going, but I'm with you already. Kodak had how many? 135,000 employees? Oh, at it's, its no, at its prime, it had over 200,000 in its prime. And the company was what, 130, 140 years old? 100, yeah, about 135, and then was in the Fortune 100 for a number of years, for, and had market caps higher than all of the automobile manufacturers combined at one time. Kodak had like 90, 95% market share of oh, the yeah. film processing yep. business. And at very high margins, yeah. Uh, and hard. everybody knows and loves this company. We'd all rank Kodak up there with Disney in terms of consumer affection and, and familiarity. Uh, who didn't have Kodachrome? Who didn't have, um, you know, Kodak Insta cameras and all this kind of stuff? I grew up with Kodak. Everybody, everybody did. Everybody did. And yet, the year they went bankrupt, Instagram was sold for a billion dollars, a company that had 13 employees and had been in existence for 18 months. And the market cap of Kodak at that time was, I think, a little over $100 million. 
Even even though about a nine, but by the way, they were doing about nine to eleven billion when they went bankrupt. They're probably they and they've come out of it as a B two B company. And that's what they yeah. should have been. But how do we explain that? How do we explain that incredible shift from the market leader with best brand recognition and popularity on the planet to bankruptcy? While a new startup, using, by the way, technology Kodak invented. Invented, right. Exactly. I mean, how ironic is that? It's because Kodak simply couldn't get out of its own way. It was was so big and was so ingrained in its current business processes, it lacked the agility to adapt to the 21st century technological way of doing business. So we need to recognize that companies that have been built on a 20th century platform are going to fail in the 21st century. Oh, without question. The same skill sets you needed 10 years ago don't apply today. Absolutely right. I mean, we all tend to forget that the smartphone is only seven years old. Yeah, and we think it's, uh, and what we would do, it's the most personal device we have. You know where your phone is more than you know where your children are, right? According to one study, 90% of Americans have their smartphone within three feet 24 hours a day. Oh, absolutely. Of course, so, we put it's on our nightstand so when we're going to sleep. It's let, always with us. Let's move off and, the big. Let, let's move off the big business for a second. Let me ask you a second. What, what advice would you give to somebody about managing their money differently, as opposed to being like a small business guy versus a big business guy? How would you tell them to to handle their money differently? Uh, when would it, you? When you you're talking about their personal investment. Yeah, personal investment. Yeah. But then, but then I want to get into. At the end of the day, you know, that small business guy's got, he's making some pretty good money, putting a little money in his pocket, and he's got some extra left over now. Well, you know, I want to get into what you would tell a big company and a small company to do with that money. Uh, For the individual investor, uh, we have to recognize that um, the environment has completely changed on a global basis. We are, of course, a global economy today. We are seeing the rise of uh, democracies globally. We are seeing the rise economically of populations uh, around the world. We know that China has now figured this out, and as a competitive threat in the world of capitalism, they are very, very strong. But it's not going to end with China. India, as well, is growing very dramatically, and India's population isn't far behind that of China's. And equally important that many people are not paying attention to is Africa. That continent has uh, even more people than India does uh, and that China does. So um, we are seeing a huge opportunity as we take the rising billion and turn them from poverty into middle class. They become consumers of all the products and services that American companies sell. But when you, so you spend, but if you were if you were looking at spending money or investing in those like let's just say I was looking at it as a company investing I'd probably go to India over Africa. Uh, today you're absolutely right. I, I would mean, agree. But over the next 20, 30 years that will begin to shift. In other words, it's not going to be a question of which one versus the other. It's it's a question of all. When we yeah. say we want to be globally diversified, we really mean it. Today you don't want to have much investment in Africa because there are too few opportunities and there's too much risk. But you do want to acknowledge that Africa will provide economic value to the companies that are located in the United States, in Europe, in Asia. Oh, 
And, and, so there, we, and there's some and there's some countries that are a little bit more safer than others. I mean, oh, I've, I've done a lot of business in South Africa, Egypt, and so forth. And the reason I'm saying India, because if you're, a, let's say your business, you're looking to export, you're looking to do some of those things, India makes a lot more sense because it's a little bit more like the U.S. in that English is spoken there by a lot more people than, say, in Africa. So, and you can tend to deal, deal with folks a little bit easier. And I agree completely. And this is why we maintain a globally diversified portfolio for our clients. It is predominantly in the United States because that is still the economic engine of the world. Um, but we do have exposure for our clients in the foreign markets and in the emerging markets. The emerging and foreign markets only comprise about 15 or 20 percent of our clients' portfolios. So it is a minority position, but it is providing exposure to uh, what we believe is going to be the next wave over this coming century. Uh, for investment opportunity. You didn't say uh, anything about the BRIC countries. What, what do you think about down South America? Uh, well, by definition, when you're investing globally, you're mm -hmm. clearly going to hold exposure there. Uh, and so, and the BRIC, uh, you know, not all the BRICs are in South America. I yeah, mean, no, that's talking, true, too. That's but, right. when you're, but Brazil is clearly a powerhouse. Mm -hmm. But let's put it this way. I don't, wouldn't be terribly excited about Venezuela, if you catch my drift. Oh, I got that. Um, it's got so, a lot of issues there. And um, so almost, we have to be very looks careful like how we're doing Republicans and Democrats fighting, actually, with a lot of the stuff that's going down there. Just, just a side note. Almost yeah, feel like so, we're on Fox now. So the real key is to stay globally diversified and maintain a long-term time horizon. Don't be impatient and don't allow the momentary news freak you out. Great illustration of this is Greece. Mm -hmm. Everybody panicked in 2008 because Greece was threatening to default, and everybody said it was going to destroy the European Union and blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what happened? Greece ended up being the most profitable of all bonds in Europe. Now they're threatening to default all over again, and everybody's got their arms up and worry all over again. So what? It's not a big deal. We have to remember that Greece has a total economic impact comparable to that of Connecticut. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. We got everybody here in the studio laughing at the same time, too. But, you know, when you hear that, but isn't that most of the guys, that, it gets back to the stuff that we were talking about earlier, people paying attention to, you know, I watched the reports live from NASDAQ, live from the, the New York Stock Exchange about this stock or that or what's going on like this is game by game day you know play by play action and which to me is just a bunch of crap uh, and unfortunately there's a lot of what we call um, financial pornography out there oh, what's um, that oh, describe that well, you know, Born, you know Born when you see pays it, money, um, so that's good. There, there is uh, a lot of noise out there. That is, it's meant to be titillating. Uh, you're, you, you, it, it forces you to look whether you want to or not, uh, and yet it serves no effective, useful purpose, and in fact, can ruin you. Um, so we have to recognize that most of what the media generates is not in your best interest. It is not designed to be helpful. It's designed for their own self-interested motivations of attracting eyeballs so that they can increase the amount of money they make selling ad time to advertisers. Um, so I'll put it to you perfectly. One of, uh, one of the top uh, financial journalists uh, in the industry uh, once told me that he has found, and this is what he said to me, he said there are only 10 or 12 stories out there in the field of investments and personal finance. There are only 10 or 12 stories. The problem, he said, is I have a weekly column. So, he's got so to he has to come up with come something up with to write something. about, even if there's nothing to write about. Right, right. And, and, that, and it's always good to make a controversy or, or, or to scare people. Scare, scaring people works a lot better than anything. 
And and that goes back to the evolution of mankind, where the oldest part of our brain is the part that was designed for the fight or flight element. When you're sitting there in the savanna with tall grasses and you see the grass moving, you have to ask yourself a question. Is that a breeze or is it a lion? Yeah, something coming to eat me. Me, and so fear captures our attention far faster, far more effectively than any other emotion. It's literally built into our brain. And so naturally, when they go on TV and tell you that some country is about to default, or there's going to be this threat, or that risk, or this negative impact, that captures our attention faster and longer than if they were to say, let me tell you how many banks weren't robbed yesterday. Yeah, exactly. So when you, you know, we talk about being safe versus a little bit of risk, but you, I, there's a quote that I, I got, dug out of the archives on you. It said, left to their own devices, investors naturally choose safety. And it's one of the worst decisions they can make. So you, at one time I hear a little bit of risk, but not so much risk. So how do you, how do you weigh that? Yeah, here's the sad irony. A lot of people really hate investment risk. They hate volatility, and and many people were shocked at not only how much money they lost in 2008, but how fast they lost it. In a period of a year and a half, the market fell 65%. Many people had far even more aggressive portfolios, and they had no idea they were taking so much risk or exposed to so much risk, and they were shocked at how much money they lost. And they've said to themselves, never again. I will not allow myself to experience that. So they've run to safety. They have placed their money into government bonds, money market accounts, bank accounts, CDs, uh, and the like, municipal bonds, fixed annuities, the kinds of investments that offer guarantees against loss, but at the price of very low returns. So they're earning 0 point nothing in bank accounts. They have money that is growing at 1% or 2% in an annuity, but it is, quote-unquote, safe. And what they don't realize is that they are guaranteeing themselves losses in real economic terms. When you factor in taxes mm. and inflation, that 2 or 3% account is actually losing money. And they're going to suffer the consequences of this when it, when it hits them when they're 65 or 75 or 85 years of age. In other words, I've never seen anybody go broke because they took too much risk, but I've seen a lot of people go broke because they didn't take enough. Boy, change, adapt, or dies kind of thing. By, and by just trying to keep up with you, I need some coffee. I'm going to take a break right this second for Dunkin' Donuts. America runs on Dunkin'. This show does as well right here, all business. I need some caffeine just to keep up with you, Rick. Do you, and I, and you, I, you mentioned you don't drink coffee, but you got to have some kind of caffeination to keep the energy you're, you're giving to me right now. Oh, well, if we're talking about Dunkin' Donuts, man, give me a Boston cream. <laughs> there you go. Man, I need another one. I like the ones that are filling with bacon right now. That's the ones I've been going for. <laughs> I can't bring myself oh, to it's do all, that. Those are, you got to, man. you got to go off the deep side. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, I like this this little quote that you gave to me as well. I like to tell my employees we're not a financial services company. We're a technology company that delivers financial services. Explain that to me. 
Well, this kind of goes back to the notion of exponentiality, and, and, and we are delivering our, our advice and services in ways that we never did in the past. We have a, we have a website where our, and a portal where our clients can go online 24-7 in order to take a look at their accounts and, and transact business and communicate with their financial advisor. Uh, we have mobile technology where they can do the same. Uh, clients can actually, we have Edelman Online, which is one of those so-called robo-advisors, where clients can actually engage in all of the investment management services of our firm with no human intervention on a 24-7 basis. Uh, we are using technology to track uh, client accounts to help us in the trading of those client accounts. We're using technology to reach out to clients. We're using email, of course, uh, in ways that in the past we would have had to write a letter and take days for them to receive it. We can now communicate instantaneously. We're doing uh, availability of content with all of the social media, Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and all the other sites. Uh, so we are using technology to enable us to be able to respond more quickly to what's going on in the economy, more quickly to the client's needs, uh, and so that our responsiveness is everything that they need. And without technology, we wouldn't be able to do any of these things. That, so I'm that, trying to implore to my staff, since most people hate technology, is to say, you've got to embrace it. You've got to become a master of this software so that you can use it to improve your delivery of client service. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Does it make it less personal or more personal? It sounds like it, more personal. Yeah, I, far I agree more with personal. you. A lot more personal because you can be in touch. It's about using the data and getting in touch with them. But yeah, and, and we can let the computer do the grunt work so I can spend more time talking to my client. Yeah. Do, does it, the, by saying you're a technology company, does it help you give yourself a little bit, just as, you, as your own business, does it give you a better valuation? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. Well, I wanted to never That's why I wanted to ask it. I, yeah, I think it probably I, I, does. I mean, it takes it because I would think a lot of the financial services business, and there are a lot of good ones and a lot of bad ones out there as far as I'm concerned, and and they're, they're very much based on the people, your person, my guy, right? And, yeah. you're, and you're doing more than just the guy. I've, hey, there's all these other things I can give to you and the way in which I can do it and so forth. To me, that would give you a better valuation. You don't need all those. It's not so subject to a person's opinion. Which a lot of a lot of financial advice is based upon that. You're absolutely right. We have a very systematic approach, a very highly detailed, uh, rigorous, and uh, well thought out investment management approach that is not dependent on any one individual. So nobody wakes out of bed in a bad mood and decides to sell, or in a panic because of some headline, or giddy because of some press release and deciding to shift client assets. It is a very disciplined approach that involves many, many people, uh, lots of brain power, rooted in modern portfolio theory and in uh, detailed studies in behavioral finance and neuroeconomics. Uh, it is the most academically sound, tested, and uh, developed approach to money management. And we're not the only ones doing this. It's used by most pension funds in America, institutional money management, endowment funds. We are bringing that professional level sophistication of investment management to ordinary investors who normally can't gain access to this. You, are our you guys all using the same formula then or what? I mean, do you guys All of the advisors the in our firm work as a team. So all of the uh, clients in the firm, regardless of who their advisor is, are getting the same advice from an investment management perspective. Now, the clients are getting different portfolios depending on their individual circumstances from a financial planning well, view. Well, and, and some of those people also have different levels of risk or they of like course. certain things. Yeah, I like this stock of over course. this one. And but so the portfolio philosophy underlying all of that is the same. It is global diversification, long-term time horizon, strategic rebalancing, and keeping costs low. And that applies 
uniformly to everyone in our firm. And we, the thing that is most thrilling to me is that we can do this for clients who have a money as little as $5,000. You don't have to be a multimillionaire to become our client. We'll work with anyone who wants our help. All right, so let me get, let me ask you advice, which is what I need here. Let's imagine I'm a small business owner. I got a lot of extra cash left over. I had a pretty good year, added about 20, 30% to the bottom line. What should I do with it? I got a couple hundred thousand dollars to invest. Should I invest it in the market? Should I go buy real estate? Should I go buy a building? What should I do? The first thing you should do is focus on your business. Can you take that extra cash and reinvest it into your business to grow your business? Yeah, like a salesperson or you know maybe a, a new line or something or upgrade yes. some yes. of the computers or something along those lines? Yes, I have always said to my executive team, um, I can't spend enough money on my company. The more money I put into my business, the better my business will be assuming, and the better off my clients will be. Yeah, if you're making money. If you're not making money, it's probably not the best move. Probably. You might, it, might, people might, used to People used to say to me, you know, years ago, they say, Rick, what, what, what are you investing in? And I used to joke and say, I'm investing in a highly speculative growth stock. <laughs> Yourself, right? Myself. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so that's the first thing I would ask you to do as a business owner. Now, as your business grows, you do get to the point where you literally can't reinvest it all. You're going to have profit, and you're already spending everything you can spend on. So you do have extra cash left over. So what I would say then is you default to what I told you earlier, a highly diversified, globally-based portfolio. You ask, should, should you invest in real estate? Yes. Okay. Should you invest in stocks? Yes. Foreign stocks? Yes. Commodities, precious metals, natural resources, energy, uh, government securities, commodities. You should invest in everything everywhere all the time. Yeah, what do you think is the best business today to be in? When you look at all the businesses out there. Is it a product-based business, service-based business? or? Um, it is the, t uh, I will tell you that the business that is closest to the customer is the business that wins. I like those. I like, I like service-based businesses that people don't want to do certain things and you do them for them. That's, is that what you're talking about? Something like yeah, that? I yeah. think I, whoever is closest to the customer. Now, well, let me ask you this about Dunkin' Donuts. Is that a service business or a product business? That's a little bit of both, but it's really a service business in the end. I mean, they're but fast it, but, casual. But some, I, 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 I mean, I'm not a Dunkin' Donuts guy, but I, I mean, I've, I've done a television show on them, and I go there a lot. And they've made some good transitions. I've been, you know, I got 17,000 franchises around the world. And, and the thing that, that you are interested in, and I agree with you, the thing that you're interested in about Dunkin' Donuts is the experience you have with yeah, them. I go into in the other words, guy, not, yeah, I got a guy it, that I go into. I get my, I get a, I use a, I have a couple, I usually drink two double espressos in the morning um, to get myself moving and uh, go in and see the same guy every day. Love it. It's not just the coffee. It's not just the donuts. It's the entire package. It's the entire experience. So although they're selling a product, at the end of the day, that's what they're doing. It is the service surrounding that product and their closeness to the customer that makes all the difference. And I, so it's, I think that is endorsing the point that you're making that, uh, let's face it, coffee's a commodity. You can get coffee everywhere from everyone. So how does Dunkin' Donuts justify or explain their success mm -hmm. in selling coffee. Clearly, it's not just oh, yeah. 70, the commodity. 70% of their business is coffee. By the way, 70%, which is amazing, because their name is Donuts, right? Yeah, I never would have guessed that. No, it's 70%. I, I didn't know that because I did a show on them. Let me ask you, a, I got a, a fan-sourced question. John, John Lee Media asks, he says, what investment opportunities do you kick yourself for missing or not jumping on? 
it's not what didn't, I mean, I'm not going to be upset that I didn't buy Berkshire Hathaway's in 1980 or Microsoft when Bill Gates first went public. Um, yeah. you know, th- those are too obvious. I'm simply going to say what I regret is not having invested sooner than I did. Yeah, that's always the case. It- I had the chance in my 20s mm-hmm. when I was in school and getting out of school and getting started, and I didn't, and I regret that. And I think we all say, I wish I'd started 20 years ago. So the real message is, don't lament the past. Recognize that you will always be able to say, I wish I'd done it sooner. And I don't care what the asset class is. Remember the house you could have bought 10 years ago and don't, you know, or 50 years ago? Um, remember, you know, whatever the asset is. So the key is invest now. Invest, treat it like voting. Do it early. Do it often. Yeah. So you've got like uh, over you, over 500 people, right, in your operation? Yes. So it's yes. a good-sized business. I mean, that's, that's congratulations, by the way. That's just a, it's a good-sized business. I bought and sold a number of businesses in my career, and I know what that's like. And, and I've managed uh, my last marketing department was over 5,000 people, so I know what that's like. That's a lot of people. Congrats on that. Thank what, you. What do you. What do you do for fun, Rick, as a, as a business? When you kick back, I mean, and you're, you're done for the day. We're never, ever done. You know that. Yeah. We're always yeah. thinking stuff. I mean, I bet you're the kind of guy that sits in there. They could do this better. They could do that better while you're in line, in line for something. Um, you seem to have that kind of mind. What, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, my wife and I like to entertain. Uh, we like to host dinner parties. Um, we like to travel uh, with friends. Um, Where do you, uh, like, like, where's your favorite place to travel? Uh, the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. Um, you like the sun? You like that? Do you, do you go to the beach or are you a pool person? Uh, the um, little of both. I don't know. That's kind of guy likes to just lay on the beach, but um, but like just to be in the warm weather. I'm not really thrilled with all the snow we're having these days. Oh man, that's been terrible. Yeah. Um, so and uh, uh, as as hobbies, I like to shoot pool, play chess, and uh, and I collect uh, old astronomy books. Is that right? A stargazer. Do you ever mm-hmm. do you have a telescope? I do. Yeah, a ten inch mead. Did you have one when you were a kid? No, I did not. Yeah, my dad gave me one when he was a kid. He came back from Vietnam. Uh, he was over and serving in there, and he bought me a really big one, which was a lot of fun. Let me ask you, your dad, I, I remember reading this in your bio, was like one of the very first promoters of professional bowling. He was. Uh, uh, he built a company that became the largest uh, bowling tournament uh, enterprise in the country. Still is. There are tournaments now based out in uh, Las Vegas. They were as I was growing up, all over the East Coast. And it was the anti-professionals. In other words, you had the PBA, the professional right. bowlers. Uh, and my father ran tournaments for everyone who was not a PBA member. So it was for the masses, the ordinary league bowler who just wanted to do a tournament one weekend. And, and he's built uh, the largest uh, bowling tournament organization in the world. My, and my uncles I, and my uncles were professional bowlers back in the 50s. And wow. my uncle passed away about uh, 10, 15 years ago, and I got his 300 rings. And awesome. N- n- numerous of them, by the way, which is kind of in my Uncle Joe, my Uncle my uncle Bob, my Uncle Jack, uh, uh, all of them were all. B- what's your highest score? You, you had to bowl. Did you? Uh, did your dad yeah, make you they, bowl or did you like to bowl? Well, the family tells me that I was bowling before I was walking. Yeah. Uh, you know, when your father's in the bowling business, <laughs> you spend yeah. a lot of time in bowling alleys, yeah. which is why I shoot pool, because there's also sure. pool oh, a lot of pools, bowling yeah. alleys. Oh, I had, yeah, I had one of my uncles. Yeah. He, that's what he did for a living. Was play and pool. pinball. I'm a big pinball fan. What was your highest score? Uh, it was only 229 uh, back in high school, yeah, uh, which is the good. last time I was on the high school team. I haven't played. Uh, I haven't bowled seriously since. My brothers were far better than, than I was. I saw my brother roll several 300 games. and uh, I don't know if you just heard, but some league bowler in New York just rolled a 900. Are you kidding? 
Yeah, it's only the 40th time in history that that's ever been done. Um, pretty amazing. Well, especially when you take the number of people, because it's not the most people that actually still bowl. I mean, there's still a lot of people that bowl. It's still regarded as one of the top uh, participant sports in the world. And my brother's tournament, my dad passed a few years ago, my brother now runs the company. His military bowling tournament is the largest participatory sporting event in the military in the world. That's the only thing, to, I, my dad was in the Air Force. That's where I learned to bowl, was on the um, Air Force bases. So, yeah, my brother just finished uh, one of his military tournaments. There were uh, 1,700 members of the military uh, bowling in his tournament over five days. Oh, very cool. Well, let me ask you another couple of questions. What's the hardest shot? This is a bowling question. I'm on this roll, so I'm going to keep going with it. What's the hardest shot in bowling? Well, the seven ten split, of course. Ah, they, I looked it up. We even looked it up. We had somebody print it out because it said it was the Greek church. And I said, what the hell is a Greek church? <laughs> but it, it, but it's, it's really kind of weird. Two pins on one side, three on the other. And um, that's the hardest split, huh? The, no, that, the, that is not harder than the 710. Is um, that right? Oh, not at all. No, yeah. you're, that's not nearly as difficult. There's nothing harder than oh, the 710. I thought it was the Greek church was the 710 split. It's different. Oh. One's called the Greeks, Greek church, one's the 710 split. Yeah. So, so, yeah 710 the are like the is... bedpost, right? Yes. Ah, that's yes. it. That's it. Wow. So, who is who are you? Do I have that right? Uh, I'm not sure. You, uh, who what am was your I? mascot in college in university? Uh, well, I went to a very small state school, and our mascot was an owl. Yeah, and, and we picked up it's who are you? I maybe yeah. I said it wrong. Rowan no. University. That's not... yeah. Um, which and that slogan has, and the reason I don't react to it terribly fast is that when I went there, it was Glassboro State College. They changed the name uh. after Henry Rowan donated a hundred million dollars. Oh. <laughs> hey, give me a hundred million, I'll change my yeah, name. I was going to say. Well, I was going to say when you're going to give money to change, name the university <laughs> after you. Let's go. Well, we did. We did give them the money to create the Edelman Planetarium. Uh, uh, so uh, we are in support of their uh, programs very heavily. My wife is on uh, the board. She's a trustee at Rowan University awesome. now. I love planetariums, man. They're, they're, oh, they're so much fun. They, I, I really dig them. I, I really enjoy going. I do all the planetarium in, in Chicago. I love to go there all the time. Uh, when I'm in Chicago, I like to go over there and just, just relax and listen to and watch the show, which is cool. Hey, which is better, Washington, D.C. or New York City? Well, you're not allowed to like both. Um, it's you know, it's a law. You have to love one and hate the other. But I will tell you that my wife and I live uh, in the Washington D.C. metro area, and we have an apartment in New York. So but you're skirting uh, the issue. Which which is which is which? Uh, I would love to move to New York, um, but uh, we just have so much fun and so many connections. Our headquarters are uh, in Northern Virginia, um, so we just love it here. Been here 30-plus years, and uh, we get to New York as often as possible. How about radio or TV? Which is better? Radio. Uh, far more prefer uh, the audio. It's the theater of the mind. I think it's uh, far more interesting, far more engaging for the audience. Uh, it's far more intelligent because we can talk long form as opposed to a 30-second or 90-second sound bit. Uh, and I just love doing uh, radio. I think I've been hosting my radio show for uh, yeah. 25 years now. Yeah, I think there's a, and you've got over a million listeners, I know, and you got it's a big re resurgence of this, I think, going on, especially with the podcast like we're doing right now. Yeah, uh, it's a different. It's a it's radio in a different form, without question. How about kids or dogs? 
Well, we have dogs, but not kids, so I have to choose the dogs. Yeah, I've heard you say and, it's better to get a dog than a kid. A dog's well, a yeah, less... because I don't have to send the dogs to college. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you got to send them to obedience school. It's going to cost you something, but not yeah, but it's not not going to be thirty-five grand a year. Yeah. Hey, what do you waste your money on? Cars. Cars? Do you? What? You, what? What are you driving now? Uh, well, I'm because of the snow. I'm driving my Hummer. Um, uh, so really, two days a year. The, and, the and car a two or a one? Is it a two or a one? It's a two, um, right. and uh, two, twice a year the car uh, proves valuable. <laughs> yeah, see, and I, I have an old Ford pickup truck, which is about uh, 12 years old, and got cracked windows and a bullet bullet hole in the back, just for fun. Hey, uh, what's your pet peeve? Um, people who act emotionally and rashly, um, and and um, spontaneously, as opposed to thoughtfully and. Um, uh, beneficially for themselves and for others. I would think some people would say you you are a little bit irrational sometimes. That you, that you speak very very fast, and therefore they think you're being irrational. When I really, think, I, I would think, and I'm just you and I haven't met. We've only talked by phone. I've watched you on on television a little bit, listened to some of your radio, and I would think that you know people would think that. I'm not saying you're like that. I can tell that you're. And if I were to ask you a question like, let's go to this restaurant, hey, what, where do you want to go to the restaurant? You tell me the name. You've thought through 50 in your head before you come to that decision. And part of the reason I'm very fast on the radio is because I know I'm fighting a clock. Um, <laughs> I don't have the luxury of taking as much time as we want shooting the breeze over a beer in a bar. So uh, I think my on-air persona isn't necessarily reflective of how I am off-air. Now, you say beer in a, in a bar. I, I, I would imagine you're more of a wine guy. You're right. Yeah. What do you like, red or white? Uh, Camus is my favorite, uh, I, the Cabernet. Oh, Camus. I love Camus Conundrum. I like that. It's good, great table wine. How's that? Uh, well, and then let me ask you one last uh, little rapid fire. <laughs> Opera or Oprah? Oprah. I was on Oprah five times, and in my opinion, uh, uh, Oprah is the most brilliant broadcaster I've ever met. I've met most of them. I've been on virtually every major TV show and network over the years, and I did Oprah five times, and she is without a doubt the most talented broadcaster I've ever met. I've met her a couple times and always just enjoyed it, and one of the best pieces of advice she ever gave, I heard one time, was sign all your own checks. And I thought that was pretty good as a business person. Just to yeah, I think that's brilliant. Uh, and measures Oprah's. Uh, br- she is a brilliant woman. Uh, she is. She deserves all all that she has and all that she is. Even to this day, I mean, that's one of the things I do. I, I had somebody that to- took money from us years and years ago. This is like twenty years ago. And ever since then, we've always been in control of that checking account in a way that either my wife or I am always signing the checks or releasing the money into an account for our accountant to take care of. But, yeah, it's a good good piece of advice. Hey, let me give you a shameless plug, not that you haven't pushed a little bit of the business already, but uh, but is there anything you'd like to put out a plug for? Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of financial education. That's the basis of our firm. So I would invite folks, if they want to learn how to achieve personal financial success and understanding personal finance and investment management and all that kind of good stuff, go to our website at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com, uh, and you have massive amounts of consumer information. It's all free. You don't have to register any of that nonsense. It's just there for you 
for the taking. Uh, I invite you to join my listen to my radio show that airs across the country on weekends. Uh, my current book, my eighth, is the truth about retirement plans and IRAs. Um, still uh, number one on Amazon. Last time I looked, um, and uh, we're just real happy to be able to share our knowledge and information to help people achieve their financial goals. Well, Rick mentioned one book, but he's got like seven of them. So make sure that you, you at least find one that you like. I'm sure there's one in that whole bunch. But Rick, it's been a pleasure, and I thank you so much for passing on some advice and giving uh, everybody a little all business on Jeffrey Hazlett. Thanks so much, Jeff. You're a great host. All right. Cheers, buddy. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, learned a lot of things today. It's always great talking to someone who's as fast and as brilliant as Rick and who's handled as much money as he has. I think the key things I took away from it was make sure you diversify. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I never try to have more than, say, a few thousand dollars in any one particular stock. And the reason for that for me personally is I don't want to have a big loss, and I, yet I don't want to have the big gain either. Now, do whatever you want to because I can't tell you what to do. But diversify. And he also said I thought was something he, his biggest mistake was not doing it early enough. You know, and that's invest in early. You know, if you're if you're if you're listening right now and you're 20 years old, put $500 away, put $100 away, put whatever you can afford, but put it away and start putting it away, and it's going to grow big over time. And I thought the great great comment around financial porn. Are you kidding me? Financial porn? Never heard it before. But if it's porn, it's got to make money. But well, what he was talking about was stop watching all this stuff and listening to everybody talk about it day in and day out. I know that we're pundits. I know we're supposed to give you advice, but trust your gut, pick a stock, stick with it. If it was a good decision to begin with, it's probably going to be a good decision in the long run. Ride it out and diversify. Okay, that's it. This is Jeffrey Hazlett on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on Play.it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.